Please sit comfortably, everyone. Well, this is our um, second and last day of um, session. This will be the last talk I give. Um, it's been all too brief. Um, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet up next year and um, meet in person and have uh, uh, a longer, more extensive um, session. The title of this talk today is uh, Halloween and a Dead Crow. Um, as you all know, it's uh, Halloween, um, the last day of October. I did a little bit of research on Halloween for this talk and uh, Hallow was an old name uh, for, for a saint. So it's um, All Saints Evening, you know, um, Hallow, Hallow Evening, which is then shortened to Halloween. And originally, people, it was a holiday and people used to dress up as saints, not as goblins to go around and get trick or treat from people, but somehow the pagan aspect of it came in and, and it's, it's uh, hobgoblins now that go around. But originally it was saints. And it's interesting, uh, when I was walking around my neighbourhood yesterday, you can see all the Halloween paraphernalia up, you know, for all the theatre of it, like uh, lurid green spider webs and skulls. But the most interesting one I saw outside of a house was a cauldron. And next to the cauldron were skeletons of pets, like a skeleton of a pet dog and a pet cat and a pigeon and a mouse and, and other things. And it, and it struck me that um, uh, in our sort of safe middle-class existence where we're cocooned from death, at least Halloween is a way um, that we're actually exposed to skeletons and skulls, you know, that death is there, you know, before our eyes. And maybe people really don't get the sense of it because uh, maybe people are just entertained by the by the uh, macabre theatre of it. But nevertheless, it is showing us um, what death looks like, uh -huh, which is something that we, we quite frequently ignore. Now, to come to the dead crow, um, Brett and Alex and I this morning, um, uh, when we came in, looking out from the dojo onto our garden area, there's a very large dead crow on the ground outside, a real, real crow. And um, it was an auspicious beginning to the second day of session to see that dead crow there. And, um, and then as we were about to start, as we started um, the, first, um, the first sitting period, another black crow came down. We presume it was its mate. And it sort of hovered around in the area and picked up a stick and put it down. And then it flew off with a, with a plaintive kind of cry. Um, and uh, must have sort of acknowledged that its, its mate had died. It's a very poignant start to the, to the day to experience that. And um, in um, Buddhism, we talk about um, the divine messages, the divine, divine messengers, I should say, and the divine messengers are what the Buddha saw that brought him to practice. He went outside the palace walls 
and he saw an old person, a sick person, and a dead person, as well as a monk. Um, but those three considered as a, the divine messages. So when we're visited by um, forms of death, you know, in our life, one way of looking at you can look at it in a in a you don't have to look at it in a in a morbid uh, kind of way, but they are they are divine messengers which are telling us life is brief, wake up, you know, to what this life is, what to an appreciation of life, and it's the same message we get through our evening message at the end of the day at session. I beg to urge you, everyone, life and death is a grave matter. All things pass quickly away. Same message, urging us um, to, to see these as signs of, of waking up to enjoy this precious life we have. So it's not ultimately something morbid in it, just like there's nothing essentially morbid in Zen or Buddhist practice. It's saying, wake up to these things because there's an actually, there's a real open wonderful joy in you you can experience in really by really embracing life and really in embracing death and transience and emptiness that's where your appreciation of life will actually come from <clears throat> and when we think of the uh, the other poignant aspect of this that I was reflecting on is the mate of the dead crow coming down sort of hopping around hovering around and then flying off. And one thing to consider is that many of us are in long-term relationships, or we have long-term relationships with friends and family members. And if that is the case, one of us is going to die before the other. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be like that other crow that's left behind, that connects and then, and then flies off. It'll probably be a sad experience for all of us but it's not necessarily a sadness which is morbid. And a sadness can be seen as something depressing and terrible, or sadness can also, when it's trans transformed, can be seen as a, a fullness of the heart uh -huh. and, and a recognition of connection which is there with others, not just disconnection. They're important to how we, how we actually see these things occurring in our lives. As COVID's lifting um, in Melbourne, as in Sydney and across Australia, um, and people are coming out of it, um, just to feed back to everyone some of the things that you've um, spoken to me about um, in Dyson, um, is that people are telling me, sort of generally speaking, um, of a sense of tiredness which is there. Um, and in some sense, I'm picking up a sense of um, meaninglessness sometimes that's there. And I think we shouldn't underestimate um, how significant this sort of event has been in our lives. We've never experienced anything like it before. Um, and I'm not quite sure, even though we're all going back to normal lives again, I'm not quite sure we're all out of the woods yet or that society is out of the woods. I think there's still some ongoing um, uh, readjustment or something that needs to occur. But one of the messages you get a lot in the media is how terrible everyone's going and how mental illness is going 
through the ceiling and people like me have waiting lists that they can't see anyone because they're so busy. Yes, there is that side to it, um, but what doesn't come through in the media strongly enough, that's true, but what doesn't come through strongly enough, and some of my Buddhist psychologist colleagues, you know, been stating this in the media, is resilience. You know, we may go through difficulty and vulnerability, um, but we should also encourage people to recognise the resilience that they have to deal with these things. And this is a Dharma message. You know, the Dharma message is that there is suffering in the world, there is vulnerability in the world, um, but there's also resilience that human beings have to, to, to engage with practice and the resources that the Dharma gives us to, to engage with this. So we come to a, a deeper sense of peace with the way life is. So it's important, important to hold both of those aspects as we go through this transition period in our life. But I want to say a little bit more about the experience of meaninglessness as it comes up in, in Sarsin. Um, I presume everyone's actually experienced it to one degree or another as you've gone through Dharma practice and, and, and if you've gone through session. And may I say, if you've never experienced, you're probably not really engaging with the practice. <laughs> we all come across it. Because that's the nature of the practice, is that we've made meaning out of our life with our goals and our identities that we're fixated on. And at some point in our lives, through some kind of suffering or heartbreak or disease or big upheaval in our life, or maybe just slowly through a midlife crisis, our, our sense of meaning in life collapses. You know, our world collapses. We kind of feel like, what's the point of it? Um, uh, what meaning is there? All the kind of trinkets of success and the baubles of, excess, of success just don't mean anything anymore. Why am I doing this? Why am I going to work? Even why am I doing Zazen? What's the point of it? Um, that also comes up as well. But to practice zazen and to dissolve the fixed identity of the ego and engage just with present moment reality, you do that long enough and, and a sense of pointlessness or, or meaninglessness will start to emerge. Uh, it's important how we kind of understand that because it's the emergence of the experience of, of emptiness. You only need to do half an hour of, of Zazen sometimes to realise that you just simply find it hard to hold on to beliefs and ideas and philosophies and political opinions, whatever it might be, that have formed your identity and they just seem, they don't seem solid anymore. And, and questions like, who am I, start to arise. Mm -hmm. These are the budding, this is the budding emergence of emptiness. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important, we recognise it, and it's important that we're sitting with teachers or a sangha that can help us support us through that, because at first it can seem quite disconcerting to see all of that fall away. Now, where Buddhism is also different from other 
philosophies like Western philosophies like existentialism that um, that talk about meaninglessness and existential angst and whatever. Um, there was a, there's been a huge movement in Western thinking, mainly European thinking, where everything was questioned. Like Nietzsche said, God is dead. And so what what's the, the, the old meanings that we had in life are not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can lead, that sort of existential movement, which has influenced a lot of thinking, um, grapples with the old world order, what we thought we knew um, falling apart. But as John Wellwood um, states, he's one of my favourite authors on Buddhism and psychology, says, I mean, he, as a young man like me, he, he became very interested in existentialism um, and then shifted over to Buddhism. And in existentialism, there's the idea that life is meaningless, um, but it's a heroic struggle to create a meaning or find meaning for yourself in this meaningless universe. So it very much... Um, uh, idealises the idea of the hero fighting against this kind of meaningless existence. But that's not what Dharma practice is. Don't confuse the two. Dharma practice is not becoming, finding some kind of meaning in a meaningless universe. It's actually... in, in, In Buddhism, in the Dharma, what we're seeing, it's not life which is the problem. It's the I, it's the sense of a fixed I which is the problem, not life itself. Mm -hmm. And that's very empowering in a way because you can't change life, but you can shift the way that you hold on to this fixed sense of I. And when it dissolves, something does transform. Uh, And it's not as though if you have an enlightenment experience or you just gradually mature through Zen practice that you you end up knowing something or you end up finding some meaning there that other people can't see. That's not the way it actually works. In fact, the more you the more you practice, it, it's a it's it's geared towards it's a journey into the unknown and it's a journey into more of the unknown and more of the mystery. At the end of the journey, there isn't some place you go, oh, I know that now, right, right, mystery solved. It, it, that's not the way it works. And, and it's got its equivalent in, um, in um, Christianity or contemplative Christianity. The book I've referred to many times before in the Dharma talks, The Cloud of Unknowing, right? The Cloud of Unknowing encourages to live the, the mystery of being in God's presence, if you want to use those words. Or from a, a Zen point of view, the, mis- the mystery of just being alive, in existence, space, time, consciousness. There's something here rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. It's to live that mystery. To live that mystery is not the certainty of knowing something and feeling solid, right? It's been completely comfortable in the vulnerability of not knowing uh, and just enjoying the mystery. Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the shift between those different things. 
So it's not like some kind of existential struggle um, where you're going to find something or create something. It's not the way it works. Um, it's going more and more into the, into the mystery of life until you embrace it. We all experience, we all come across stages like particularly in a session where things can seem meaningless and where things can um, seem like they're stuck or we feel stuck. And we have this saying in, in Zen which we refer to as the virtue of stuckness. Because right? if you just experience stuckness as it is, like just be stuck, it's, it's a very rich place to be. And if I could coin the same term, the virtue of meaninglessness, you know, if you just fully embrace being with the virtue of meaningless, it's a very rich place to be in your practice. It's, it's at that point that things can, can shift. So if ever that experience comes up, go approach it rather than avoid it or don't think that something's going wrong because you experience it. Just let the I dissolve. And even if after five years or ten years of practice you come across some experience of meaninglessness in your life or in your session, um, it, can be, it can be very easy to go down a negative path and think, um, oh, there's something wrong with this practice, it doesn't work, or there's something wrong with me because I shouldn't be feeling like this. It's really... If you experience stuckness and you experience meaninglessness, they're really just symptoms indicating to you that, that there is a self trying to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like I said in a previous talk some weeks ago, quoting Robert Aitken Roshi, the mango is not stuck on the mango tree. The mango's just there on the mango tree. It's got no, not a, no idea of being stuck at all. The circumstances that we are in our life, what we are, who we are, where we are, is not essentially a place of stuckness when we fully embrace it for what it is. So if those experiences do come up, um, of course, it's best to be in contact with other people, the like-minded people, like in a sangha, to support you through it, and have all the structures and resources to support you through it. But there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you or your practice if you're actually connecting with that side of yourself. But it does transform, and it transforms into um, an openness with life. It transforms into a very deep sense of connectedness with life. And in my mind, at least from my own experience, when I feel connected with life as it is, no matter how it is, whether it's unpleasant or unpleasant, in my word, in my terms, that's meaningful. That's what meaning is to me. It's not some philosophical thing. It's no, no answer that I've found. Just it's meaningful to be connected, to experience connectedness, a different type of meaningfulness. To, to finish off too, um, apart from um, 
experiencing something unusual in our lives like COVID, you know, that we've never experienced before, at least in our, in our lives, even though people centuries ago dealt with worse plagues than our own. But it's new to us. And it also comes at a time in the history of the world where, as we all know, we're moving towards a, a climate crisis. Um, and we can also hear the, the distant drums of war beating a bit louder as well, as well as being unsettled by these new diseases coming through that we don't seem to have a lot entirely, have a lot of control over like COVID. And, and another thing on the horizon as well, which is really challenging our sense of what life is, um, which will be coming through in years to come, is artificial intelligence. You know, it's coming into our lives more and more and it's impacting on our lives. So we certainly live um, in very interesting times uh-huh, and, and challenging times. And I'm sure that has an impact on us all at some degree. Um, but the, as you all know, the, the Zen path or the Mahayana path is the path of the Bodhisattva. You know, so the Bodhisattva is connected, has a sense of connectedness and deep empathy with all beings. Uh-huh. We're, all, we're all in this together. And so there is that desire to support other people through crisis or through change, whatever, you know, to, to, to get, allow other human beings in particular to be able to see into their Buddha nature, but to support all forms of life. We just do it anyway. But it's not really a hero's journey. Right? It's not, you don't have to see it as a hero's journey to do that. Um, as Robert Aitken said in his book many years ago, um, The Mind of Clover, um, is that when Clover dies and it goes back into the ground, um, it's very rich in nitrogen and it, and it fertilises the ground around it and other things can grow out of it. But it doesn't intentionally or de deliberately do it. Uh, it just, that's just what it does. Uh -huh. um, and there's a very well-known koan, which I think I've mentioned to you before. Um, how is it that... Um, uh, how, how does the bodhisattva of compassion use all those eyes and arms at once. In other words, how, how does she or he help in the world? And one Zen teacher, teacher said, it's like um, shifting your pillow in the night. It's just something you do unconsciously. It's not something you have to try to be a hero to do. But if you develop a sense of being in touch with the unconditional and, and unconditional compassion and kindness that comes with that openness, um, then that's just what you naturally do. You just naturally gravitate to kindness towards others or, you know, support, supporting political or social actions, you know, that, that assist people rather than destroy or support wildlife or whatever, support the planet. That's just something that's a natural, um, a, a natural outgrowth of what our practice is. So, 
in coming to an end, yes, you do this practice, if you really engage with it, everyone to some point or another, like the Buddha, finds their world falling apart in some kind of way. But it's not, it's not the beginning of the end, it's not the beginning of some heroic struggle, it's kind of more an em- embracement, an embracing of that collapse, because what's really collapsing is the fixed ego structure. And when that dissolves, that's where the transformation arises in our life into openness and connectedness and a different type of meaning.